Welcome to Building the Future, the Modus podcast from RICS that brings you insight and opinion on the built environment from around the world. I'm Justin Sullivan, Senior Vice President of RICS, and my background is in quantity surveying and in particular construction. With me is Kate Willard, OBE, Chair of the Thames Estuary Growth Board and the Thames Estuary Envoy. Today, we are going to be discussing regeneration in the Thames Estuary. So, Kate, good afternoon. It's good to see you. Good afternoon. Lovely to be here. First things first, can you remind our listeners of what the Thames Estuary is and where it is? If you imagine you're standing on the roof of St Paul's Cathedral in the city of London and you're looking east, out towards your left, you've got the south coast of Essex along the Thames, right out to Southend-on-Sea. And on my right-hand side, on the North Kent coast, we go right out to the fabulous port of Ramsgate. We're about a 1,000 square miles, 4 million people, and obviously we embrace that amazing river, the Thames. And and how often do you stand on St Paul's Cathedral and and Uh, look... Probably, probably not often enough would be a simple answer to that. I'll keep my eye out for you because <laughs> I'm based in London as well. So, Kate, can you tell us about your role in the National Infrastructure Commission? How does it contribute to the UK's sustainable net zero ambitions? Yeah, of course I can. So the National Infrastructure Commission, or NIC, the UK government's official independent advisors on long-term infrastructure strategy. So I'm one of uh, nine part-time commissioners, and we're supported by a small staff staff team who are based in both London and Leeds. We genuinely understand the world isn't all just about London. Our policy recommendations cover what we call economic infrastructure, which includes energy, transport, uh, water, waste, floods and digital. So a very broad remit there. We look at the type and scale of investment and other measures the government needs to deliver to get these sectors ready for the challenges and opportunities of 2050 and, and to be fair, beyond that. We undertake various studies on topics commissioned by government, like we did a recent one on speeding up the planning system uh, for major infrastructure projects. I'm guessing that's very familiar ground for a number of colleagues who'll be listening to this podcast. And we also publish reports off our own bat. Uh, And importantly, every five years, we produce a major report, the National Infrastructure Assessment, which sets out costed recommendations on the biggest priorities for government within a a set budget envelope. Uh, We're currently working on the second such assessment, which will be published in October. And this will focus on three strategic themes, uh, achieving net zero, enhancing our environment and climate resilience and levelling up that kind of much broader fairness agenda. Thanks, Kate. If I could just take you back to the intro, and I noticed that you're the Thames Estuary Envoy. I am. What does that mean? So it's great, isn't it? I I remember when I was appointed to chair the Thames Estuary Growth Board, and in my appointment letter, it said, pleased to appoint you as chair of the Growth Board and, and Envoy. And I remember thinking what on earth is that? Is it one and the same thing? The envoy chairs the board, etc. But actually, it was the fabulous idea of Lord Heseltine, who is our kind of founding father on the estuary, who realised that across such a big territory, government should have and, and needed one accountable person for the growth across that region. So I'm that. But it also means that I can act as an international ambassador for the estuary, making sure that I can represent all of those communities, all of those businesses. We cover, I think, in excess of 25 local authorities. Um, so it's a big space. And having one single person makes it easy for us or easier to promote ourselves internationally and nationally. But also in terms of inward investment, it gives investors one phone number. And we know that can be really important for the inward investment market. 
Sure. Wow. And you are the only envoy, I understand. Is that right, that the I, UK has? I am. I'm the only envoy in the UK. And, and some say to me, that means I can make it up as I go along. I wouldn't obviously subscribe to that view. But it does give me a, a certain licence to interpret the role in the way that is most beneficial, both to the estuary and to the national economy. What role does the Commission play in helping redress economic imbalances in the UK's disparate regions? So boosting economic growth across all regions of the UK, and that all regions is really important, is one of our core objectives. So it's kind of shot through all of our work and policy recommendations. The last assessment, which was in 2018, heavily informed the government's national infrastructure strategy, which came out, uh, I think, then in 2020, and has led to the establishment, for example, of the UK Infrastructure Bank, which has a specific remit to help with financing for projects to support levelling up. And our work has critically, I think, informed the debate about greater devolution to city regions and the move to five-year transport budgets for metro combined authorities. The next assessment uh, has levelling up that fairness agenda uh, as one of its strategic themes. So you can expect us to say a lot more about the role of urban and longer transport links, longer distance transport links, um, as well as digital services uh, to promote regional economic growth. Now, you know, of course, infrastructure is only one piece of the story. It needs to be complemented by things like skills and education policy and industrial plans. But without good infrastructure, obviously, these things all become much harder. The term infrastructure, we we use that a lot in the UK. And I, I must say, as a am in construction, I, it does confuse me, the definition. Being a quantity surveyor, I like things to be processed and in boxes and perfectly organised. Is, is there a difference between construction and infrastructure? Yeah, I think there is. But I, but to your point, you know, it, it, terminology isn't always helpful, is it? If you talk to infrastructure, I think often people think of infrastructure around transport. So they think about, you know, kind of road and rail and sea and, and, and kind of air, that kind of clunky transport infrastructure. But obviously, it's much, much more widespread than that. And I think rather than presuming that everybody understands the term of infrastructure, it's much more helpful to be a little bit more specific in terms of what we're talking about. It's a little bit like the levelling up agenda, isn't it? We have a specific understanding uh, or perhaps a number of understandings of what levelling up potentially means in the UK. But again, that broader fairness, inclusive equality agenda is absolutely a global priority, whether you call it levelling up fairness or whatever, it's the same thing. So I think we always try and avoid terminology in the growth board and uh, just, as we say, talk normal. And so would infrastructure include uh, social housing in, in a UK definition? Yeah, I think so. I mean, infrastructure, are, for me, are the things that you need in place to, 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 to drive a successful economy effectively. And, and that could be anything. And again, prioritise at different times and in different ways. There are times when, for example, in terms of mobility, uh, both digital infrastructure and transport infrastructure are obviously really key in terms of that mobility agenda. When you're talking about places and spaces and safe communities, then your infrastructure requirements mu- must be or may be much more closely aligned to that housing agenda, that social housing agenda and the whole placemaking piece. So again, depending on, if you like, the lens that you're looking through, uh, infrastructure can have different priorities. It can. I think at the start you said the perception of infrastructure is of motorways, roads, airports and the like. And conscious of a global audience, when we talk about it in my sector, that is immediately what comes to mind. Um, But the agenda can be different, as you say, which lens you're looking through. That's, that's, That's fascinating. So as an advocate for regeneration, what do you see as the most critical infrastructure needs that must be addressed to bridge the economic and social gaps between different regions in the UK? I think rather than prioritise 
infrastructure? Because it's, it's very easy, isn't it, to say, well, actually, I think key to you know moving towards 2050 and net zero, key is going to be you know uh, sustainable transport, and, and and therefore that's the priority. But actually, in isolation specific items of infrastructure I don't think can be prioritised over the other. So we prefer in the estuary to take a, a kind of a broader approach which recognises the interdependencies of infrastructure and also that kind of broader system thinking that means that you're linking things up. I'll, I'll kind of give you a, an example. We're aware on the estuary that hydrogen is going to be a really important part of greening our transport. So not, not necessarily so much with cars and smaller vans where we know that batteries and, and, and electric is probably going to be the key way of, of, of greening that, that part of the transport agenda. But certainly in terms of a bigger vehicle, certainly HGV, certainly maritime, certainly aviation, hydrogen is going to be absolutely key. But if I just think about, for example, the production of hydrogen, that's going to take us a big nowhere fast because we need to think of production, then we need to think of transportation, then we need to think of storage then we need to think about the fueling infrastructure. And actually, if you speak to investors, and we need investors in the hydrogen economy to really drive that forward, investors need to see demand and they need to understand what the quantifiable demand is to de-risk their investment. So in terms of hydrogen for me, it's not one part of that whole circle. It's about being really clear about demand. Then it's about production, including importation of hydrogen. It's about the transportation, storage and fueling. So that's just an example of where I think, and again, that hydrogen piece, transport related for us on the estuary, where we have the highest density of back-to-base HGVs in the country. So hydrogen is going to be really important about cleaning up the air in our estuary. That sort of hydrogen sitting in a broader piece of transport infrastructure, which is sitting in a broader infrastructure piece, that's the way that we approach it. So not prioritise one trying to think all the time about the interdependencies. That, that's amazing. So I, I mentioned earlier we, we were having a chat the, that you have been um, outside of the UK um, dealing with counterparts or in other jurisdictions. And I mentioned that, that there's a standard that um, RICS is involved in, the International uh, Construction Management Standards, ICMS, which standardises carbon across the built environment and the, the challenges that you saw when you were in the in the states and and south america was that were they a surprise to you? Are they similar to ours or are they, are they quite different? Yeah, absolutely similar. And it's one of the reasons why we're working internationally. It's that kind of global local agenda, isn't it? We're working currently in, in Switzerland, in Mexico, uh, in, the, in the States, in, in South Africa, and with a, with a number of countries in Europe. And actually, the agendas are, are, are the same, aren't they? You know, everybody knows that we need to move to net zero. Everybody knows that it's appropriate and right and, and, and important that we move forward on a kind of an inclusive growth agenda. Everybody knows skills are important. Everybody knows a robust healthcare system is important. And so at the Growth Board, we uh, recognise that our ability to not just secure investment, but I think accelerate innovation. And we're really, really in that space where we believe that the world will grow greener and better more quickly with that international agenda and that ability to accelerate innovation. So I've just come back, as I mentioned, uh, from Indiana, where the government has signed an MOU with uh, Indiana, with the state to help uh, not just kind of promote trade between those, the UK and uh, and Indiana, but also, as I say, to accelerate innovation. I've just come back from there. They've got exactly the same issues. 
even down to, obviously, on the Thames, we've got tidal issues with regard to flooding, so raising sea levels uh, related to climate change, uh, which is raising the levels of the Thames and increasing uh, the danger of flooding in London. But, you know, absolutely, you know, in Chicago, issues of flooding there uh, in Indiana, absolutely on the Ohio and the Wabash rivers, absolutely issues of flooding there. So some of the things which are super pertinent and even really quite specific to us as a city and to us as a region are absolutely being felt abroad. And so one of the politicians in Indiana is going to be joining us on some groundbreaking work that we're doing with the Environment Agency, looking at how not just the Environment Agency's Thames Estuary 2100 plan can be implemented, but making sure we're bringing in super smart international thinking, which will help contribute to the way that we think that agenda can be moved forward, but also will share that back with these colleagues in Indiana and other parts of the world. So, you know, we work in absolutely in, in, in Teesside, we work in the Northwest, we work with regions around the UK, but we also recognise that real importance of global thinking and making those global partnerships absolutely fully functioning and absolutely local. So I have a story about ICMS and um, it's um, from the Irish government who came to the coalition and said there's a perception that building social housing in Dublin is the most expensive in the world. Is it or not? And there was no standard for comparing. That's one good thing, if I bring it back to RICS, is we create standards that you can then actually compare. So we said, well, we can't do the measurement for you because we're an independent coalition, but we can point you in the direction of a QS firm and give you our standard, and they can do it. And so they did it. That's what they did. But what they didn't do is they didn't tell us the answer. Okay. So whether it is more expensive to build in Dublin or not. I mean, um, so we, we didn't get an answer to that. But it'll be interesting to see. I'll, maybe we'll pick up with you after how with those classifications, you can then actually compare like for like in another country because there are perceptions that it is more expensive or not somewhere else. Yeah. So I, I and I'm sure many of the, the guys listening to this will have a similar experience where you there'll be, you know, City X. And in City X, there is a whole heap of deprivation. There are communities who are really struggling, potentially sort of intergenerational unemployment and, and absolute lack of access to economic activity, education, healthcare and the jobs market. And so City X will say a government or private sector, give us investment. And if you give us investment immediately overnight, poverty will be solved as if it was some kind of fairy wand that had been, you know, shined dust all over uh, that shiny dust over that deprived city. You and I both know that that's that is that is that is meaningless. If you you know there are there are communities around the estuary around the UK which have had investment, but it's sort of been done to those communities. It's it's been and and there has been a presumption that putting money in somewhere will solve this, and it doesn't. And this is why we have some areas where this deprivation is so entrenched. Whatever you do around the edges is is not hint through. So so we don't do that in the estuary. We will not do that. And what 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 we believe we need to do is to um, to speak to in a respectful and a proper way and to listen to those communities. So I'm just going to give you, you know, give you an example of, uh, you know, let's say somewhere in, uh, in Dartford, uh, where we may have a, a deprived community. This is just a, a, an example. What we've done is we've layered over uh, and some very, very, very clever people at PRD have laid over loads of indices of deprivation to give us the real hotspots where there is really severe and deeply entrenched uh, deprivation. And we've we, we've gone from, well, it's kind of that part of Dartford to it's that part of Dartford to it's number 34 to 39 Myrtle Street. 
right? That's so that's wow. specific. Right? No one else is doing us in the UK, right? Yeah. Uh, as I say, clever people at PRD. Um, so so uh, so we know where that is, and we now know that Dave, for example, who lives at number thirty-five, uh, would we'll, we'll we'll speak to Dave and we'll we'll have a conversation with Dave. The real issue for Dave was uh, that for the jobs that he wanted, that he was skilled and equipped to do, and for some of his mates as well, it's the same thing. He couldn't get there. Dave hasn't got a car. And there's no public transport. So I now know that to enable Dave to function and to get a job and to do what he wants to do, Dave needs a bus. So that means that Dave doesn't need a shiny new college. Dave doesn't need a big job centre. Dave doesn't need all the sorts of things that you sometimes, and which sometimes people do need. Dave needs a bus. So that means when I get an investor coming to the estuary who has a kind of proper ESG agenda, a proper inclusive agenda, which so many investors let's say all of them nowadays do have, they can say to me, we're going to invest in the estuary and we're going to give you these shiny spangly things. And I can say, you are going to invest in the estuary, but I don't want your shiny spangly things. I want a bus for Dave. It is our view that tackling deprivation means understanding what those barriers are. And that means having respectful conversations and making sure that you do stuff differently. Again, it's absolutely our view. You do same old, you get same old. You've got to listen to do stuff properly. That takes me to to another topic which is close to my heart, and and that is how we treat our people in our sector, in construction, um, the well-being, the mental health issues, um, nutrition, to quote um, a friend of mine, Kate Cook. She's a nutritionist and said the, the way the food in the canteens, the food that they eat after work, the amount of sugar in it, good sugar, bad sugar... Is there anything in your projects that, that, that you bring a focus to for, for well-being or mental health in construction? So I think in terms of mental health and well-being, I think we can, whilst there's, there's, there's a way to go in so many places, we can celebrate the developments that have been made in men- mental health, the recognition of it, the fact that just so many more conversations are happening. And I think, obviously, broadly speaking, that's a great thing. And certainly in our organisation, an organisation that you know works in the main a nine-day week, actually having really good and respectful conversations with my colleagues and with the team, with the board, to make sure that we as an organisation are are well and fit and healthy is really important. I think in terms of mental health and health and wellbeing, the, the, the sort of biggest area where that has a direct impact on our thinking is that kind of broader placemaking. And I sort of hate the phrase placemaking because it can mean so many different things to different people. But when we start to think about... Housing, when we start to think about communities, when we start to think about infrastructure that unlock spaces. Again, it goes back to that thing I was saying at the beginning about the interdependencies and the system thinking, trying to make sure that things tie up well so that communities are fully and properly served by all those things that make them happy and healthy. And for us, some of the the very practical stuff might be about access to the river. You know, we're looking at some really practical stuff around the Thames Path. Now, the Thames Path has been developed by a whole heap of, of other agencies and organisations, uh, not ourselves. And it's a path that goes right the way around the Thames. But there are ways that we can improve the path, which, which are really important. And when we think about improving access to the river, really importantly, we always think about accessibility in the broadest broadest sense not just conventionally what does a kind of building regulation mean by accessibility but thinking what is it we we might help working with partners with the path what is it we might think about doing that makes people feel really super welcome on that path not just that they can get there if if they use a wheelchair for example but that people feel welcome it's about behavior isn't it, it and is. if people 
but yeah, if they think if they're, th- if they're happy and they're thinking well, behaviour then stems from that is different, and it makes it makes it easier to get where you want to go. Biodiversity, the Thames Estuary. What's going on in that space, Kate? Could you give us some insights into the challenges and opportunities? So we're looking at the moment with a number of partners towards uh, the creation of a biodiversity uh, investment fund. And what we're looking to see if we can do, and I've done this in a kind of previous corporate life in a slightly different way, is to see if we can bring together. So if you remember at the BNS, we've got about a thousand square miles. So it's a big old patch. And on that patch, there's lots of uh, land which we know will be used and should be used for construction. Lots of land that will be used for parks and and should be used for that. But we also know there are pockets of land which are too small really ever to be useful. Or there are pockets of land that we know will be developed but might not be developed for, say, 10 or 15 years. So there's lots of land that's sitting there that's kind of redundant, a bit scrubby. So we're going to try and pull that together into a single portfolio and then enable investors to invest in a biodiversity fund. What that means is that all these little scrubby bits of land and redundant large sites that aren't going to be developed for some time will have biodiversity plans for them. They will be managed properly. So we'll be improving the diversity and biodiversity across the estuary. And it's a really collaborative venture, us working with investors, us working with site owners, some of the big organisations, obviously, who are speaking to Highways England, to to Network Rail, to Transport for London and and, and to others. Amazing, amazing. I I think the next question, it it might be one of your examples, specific example or success stories that you can share to demonstrate the positive impact of infrastructure on local communities and the environment so i think that yeah i would absolutely refer you back to the biodiversity funds i think that's a kind of that's a kind of great way that uh that the communities can have such a positive impact uh, on the way that infrastructure is developed there's something here which is about and it refers back to my story about kind of you know dave in dartford as well which is that the development of infrastructure needs to be a collaborative process, which is a listening process. How do you actually go about that consultation, that collaborative work? Because as you say, these communities won't change or may not change, and it may take a long time. How, how do you do that? Is that in a community hall with 100 of them, or do you do it on a more granular basis? I think it depends. So the, the work that we're doing, uh, the sort of Dave Story work, is is very granular for a very particular reason because we're trying to get to those places of super, super high um, deprivation and entrenched deprivation. So that needs to be very granular. I think whether it's 100 people in a room or one person at a bus stop or 1,000 people online or whatever, sometimes it's just key how you do it. Because what happens in, again, the worst excesses of consultation, people will say, we did 64 workshops around the country, we've spoken to 5,000 people, da, 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 da. And uh, uh, the clue's in the title, isn't it? We've spoken to. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and rarely do, do you hear, you know, uh, people saying, we've listened to. And having really listened properly, which, again, is needs to be done respectfully and recognising that... Uh, you know that, that that listening is 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 quite complicated, and also that that by listening to somebody, by asking somebody to share something with you, you're entering into a contract of understanding that means that you need to also share with that person what will happen to what you hear, because again, you know, consultation is a process, not a tick box. Well, in obviously, some people do as tick box exercise. So I think really understanding. When is listening appropriate? When can it be helpful, both for those people that you're listening to and for plans? You know, making sure there's a proper contract of understanding and that you you can go back to people and, and share with them what's happened to what you've heard and why you can do some things and maybe not others. So I think the kind of, 
Yeah, I'd rather call it the the science of listening than consultation, probably. What advice would you give to individuals and communities who want to actively participate in shaping sustainable and inclusive infrastructure projects in their region? I think one of the things that's that's, that's probably quite helpful is is for people to if they're interested is to try and understand how people can engage with the infrastructure agenda and that might be with their local council it might be a local authority to understand what that council is doing around about infrastructure it might be somebody in the healthcare system it might be somebody in a digital provider who's 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 a business that's working locally so i think people thinking about how they might be able to engage more broadly speaking uh, with the infrastructure agenda would be a good thing and and it's it's genuinely super, super welcomed. You know, why Why would we want a national infrastructure agenda, a national infrastructure plan or regional infrastructure plan, which doesn't represent, you know, the views and needs of those people who are not just going to use it, but who are probably going to have to pay for it as well. Uh, so I just think that kind of measured but appropriate listening is a really important and in the estuary it's absolutely part of our process and whilst i'm never going to pretend that you're going to please everybody all at once that's not just going to happen i mean in the great world it would do but not every time Um, but we are absolutely committed to listening and i think some of the really you know the upside for us is that obviously we hear some great ideas we're coming to wrap up now kate and uh, what i've got from this is dave and his bus which is a which is a great story, and I look forward to seeing Dave on that bus. But also, you use the word listening a lot today, and you've you've used that in answering more than one question. Is about listening and being a good listener. Is there anything you'd like our listeners to be left with after this podcast? Yeah, I mean, we are at our core an organisation, a growth board, a government backed private sector led growth board, driving growth across the Thames Estuary region. We know we can't do it on our own. We don't want to do it on our own. So we'd be really keen to hear from people who are working in that broader, good green growth agenda who might think after maybe taking a look at our website and seeing some of the things we're doing around transport, hydrogen, whatever, if they think that maybe working with us or just sharing some conversations, sharing some ideas might be helpful for both parties. We're really up for collaboration. So if I can leave one message, it's give us a call. That's great. And keep an eye out for my application to join your board, Kate. Perfect. That sounds like a great bunch of a great bunch of Perfect. people. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's just been just a joy speaking to you. Thank you. So thank you for listening to Building the Future, the Modus podcast. Please follow us on your podcast app to stay up to date with the latest episodes from Modus and RICS. Thanks for listening to Building the Future, a podcast from RICS Modus. For show notes or for more information on RICS, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.